how do you spend $5 billion on real estate? That's billion with a B. My guest, Don Ganguly of Mind, spills all the secrets in this episode. We walk through retail versus institutional property management, where rental rates are going, and how you can deploy billions and billions of dollars over a three-year period. I would start with a personal investment on a Parisian apartment overlooking the Eiffel Tower. Thankfully for their capital partner, Mind is taking a more revenue generation focused approach. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Dalton Elliott. I'm joined today, a very special guest. Don Ganguly of Mind. Uh, he is Senior Vice President of Institutional Growth at Mind. That's M-Y-N-D. Mind is the first and really the only end-to-end uh, real estate platform that helps investors from first-time home buyers all the way through to global financial institutions find, finance, buy, manage, and sell residential properties. Uh, really a big umbrella there. Don, thank you so much for joining. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So you all have been very busy. I was poking around your website a little bit, and I actually saw you all uh, at the IMN West Single Family Rental Conference. Uh, you had a very big presence there. You all just closed on a $57 million round, pegging your firm's valuation at over $800 million. So I think you know it's the holiday season as we record this episode, but also quite a bit of room for celebration over at Mind. So walk me through where Mind is and what you all are up to. Yeah, I think that investment is a confluence of two different things. One being how robust, strong, and vibrant the single-family rental in- industry is and its future, and you know, and Mind's role as a leader in that sort of ecosystem. So. It's always a combination of two things. When you have a marquee investor come in at a decent valuation, they say that we see you're in an an industry with a pretty big sandbox, a lot of room to grow, and we see you doing many things right. So we think you've got a fair shot at becoming a leader. Of course, a lot of it comes down to execution, which is why we're all here, right? So about mine, mine uh, has an interesting genesis. You know, the uh, founders, Doug Bryan and Colin Wheel, they were they founded a single-family uh, investment platform called Waypoint back in the day in 2019, and they I think they invested in close to 17,000 homes. Took that public. It subsequently merged with Colony Starwood Invitation Homes, became a pretty large behemoth. And as they were running it, they came out. The big thesis was that you know it's you're managing a complex asset, and the managers themselves were mom and pop or using third-party technology. It's kind of the analog is going to Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs and putting a portfolio together for your investment. And then when it comes to managing it, they say that it's going to be Joe's portfolio shop across the street that's going to manage it. And you're like, wait a minute, you know, you're taking all my money, you're telling me you're here to invest and you're not managing it. And that's that was kind of the state of the industry other than the big reach is a lot of money went into the acquisition and the technology behind acquisition, but not a lot in management. So they, they found in mind in 2016 with the idea of building a tech forward property management company. And that's kind of the journey we went on early on with retail investors. And the company's invested, I think, upwards of $90 million in technology. And we built sort of one of a kind, scalable platform that allows us to, you know, be nimble, to scale easily, to be more cost effective for our clients, and, and then have a underlying substructure of data so that we could measure everything. So when 
the clouds on the horizon. We see it early that we're about to screw up, so we can kind of preempt that. When there are things that are not going right, we can work with that. So it's it's a very unique culture as far as the property management company goes because most of the people in the industry are using some sort of third-party property where or Yardy app folio, and so they're dependent on these folks, one size fits all type of thing. Whereas for us, we can be much more bespoke because it's our technology, it's scaled from the ground up. And so that's that's kind of the history. Fast forwarding to more of the present, I think towards the end of last year when you know the COVID kind of caused a wall of capital to start coming into residential real estate because people saw that it had been an industry that's been robust, it's held its value, it's been it's been there up and down through good and bad times. So we started getting approached by a number of large institutional investors saying, you've got a national platform, you have the technology, you have the people, we'd like you to manage bulk stuff that we are going to invest in in many markets now. I know later on in the conversation, we're going to talk about institutional versus retail. But when we looked at that, we we sort of deduced that institutional investors have certain needs that are very different from retail investors in terms of reporting, in terms of how they look at the portfolio, how they acquire. So we stood up an institutional business within Mind, which was called Mind Investment Management, MIM, which is, which is the group that I'm part of now. And the idea of that is that would help institutions acquire as well as manage their assets. So that was late last year. And then this year, we started seeing institutions coming to us saying, I know you manage, you've got a great data and an acquisition technology. We, you know, we, we have information on 110 million trend, you know, properties for transactions for 20 years. We track 200,000 neighborhoods. So we built a very robust data and analytics engine that we use for acquisition as well as for management. You know, it's sort of embedded within the, uh, you know, I would say the bloodstream of the company. And that's the point that we sort of ended up with Invesco, which is again, a topic I know we'll talk about here where they committed to investing about $5 billion over the next three years with the mine platform. And so it became a combination of standing up a property management arm that would help institutions and then taking our acquisition engine and helping someone like Invesco acquire a substantial number of properties over the next several years. And so, you know, mine today is close to 10,000 properties in, you know, national about 26 plus markets growing extremely rapidly around, you know, both those kind of motions. As well as obviously we, we continue with our retail motion, which you put so well in the beginning, you know, everything from acquiring, you know, doing the due diligence on it, you know, then actually managing it, but also providing finance, insurance. So kind of an end-to-end integrated investment management solution for retail investors. And then there's a subset of that that obviously we bring to the party for institutional investors. So that's kind of our overall mind value proposition. And obviously we're still a work in progress and we continue to improve each of these sort of motions as we as we move forward. Yeah, a lot to unpack. And I, I want to, in my mind, break it up between property management and acquisition. Most episodes of this podcast, you know, our, our production team comes up with the title, they, they give a few options. In my mind, how to spend $5 billion is a, is a good one. But we'll, we'll see what the, the more creative minds come up with. But starting on the property management side of the fence, you know, very, very unique in that you work with the retail investors all the way up to massive financial institutions, really institutional size firms. 
what are some of the differences? What are some of the similarities? In my day job at Lima One Capital, we're a lender to real estate investors. We work with someone who is doing their very first deal, whether it's buying their first rental property, buying their first property to flip, all the way up to folks who do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these a year. And there are a lot of differences. There are some similarities. So, so what do you see on the property management side? You know, the biggest uh, thing or probably the best way to look at this is when you're an institutional investor, you're, you're looking at metrics across a portfolio, right? So you're saying, you know, I got 100 properties, I got 1,000 properties, whatever you might have. And you're looking at metrics that say it's, you know, the vacancy is 4%, the delinquency is 5%, evictions 0.8%, you know, whatever those numbers are, you're factoring it in the context of the overall portfolio. If you are an individual investor, you know, you've got one or two properties, when that's vacant, your vacancy is 100%, you know, or one of the, one of the two is vacant, your vacancy is 50% because you don't have the ability to normalize it across a larger portfolio. So the level of angst is very different from an from, from a institutional investor, obviously. It's like, you know, you buy a couple of stocks and then you're glued looking at what the stocks are doing, or maybe you've invested in Bitcoin and put quite a lot of money in there. And then, you know, it goes from 10,000 to 50,000 to 40,000 and you, you're writing that yo-yo. So, so that's, I think, you know, when you service your client, but the biggest thing is you've got to understand where, what their hopes, dreams, and aspirations are. You know, the mind sort of tagline that we use is happy homes and healthy investments. The reason we use these two is happy homes is basically if you don't have a happy resident, that's your cash flow engine. So, you know, you, you lose out if you're not focused on the resident as a, as a major customer or focus point of yours. And healthy investments is speaking to whether it's institutional or retail investor, that they are making money from this investment, right? When we, we have a whole bunch of metrics, but we can't lose sight of the fact that is this person getting what they wanted? They had a certain thesis when they came in. Are we being able to deliver that investment thesis to them? So that manifests in a bunch of different ways, right? So a retail investor, for example, on the front end of the acquisitions process can get jaded when they make five offers and don't get in. You know, an, an institutional investor, it's uh, it's par for the course. They know that if they make 20 offers, they'll get maybe five. So they're, they're playing that statistical game. The retail investor sometimes, you know, you're used to bargaining in certain areas. This is not a market you can bargain too much, right? Prices are there, it's high velocity. So sometimes there's an educational process that says, hey, you know, if you want to play, you really don't have a lot of time to go back and forth. You got to make sure that this works for you. And maybe there's a little cushion on top of it that you need to come up with. And people are doing it buying homes today, right? They're not necessarily getting what they want when they walk in the door right away to buy a home. So that's part of the orientation is they don't, they don't think of it in, in law of large numbers or, or in terms of data. And on the property management side, when they get a vacancy or when, when we have to set rent, and rents are moving rapidly, as you know. I mean, they're, you know, home prices are moving even faster, but rents are moving very rapidly and faster in certain markets and others. And the retail investors nervous about vacancy. So they are sometimes nervous to push the needle and say, oh, no, let's, let me not go to market. I may not get anybody or it may be vacant longer. And so where the institutional investor is going to be much more, let's get to market rent, right? Because they know that what it's like salary, wherever you start your basis from there, right? You're never going to make a whole lot more if your entry salary is not where, where it should be. And so that makes for a different dynamic for our property management teams, because we've got to balance the angst and and the aspiration of the angst of the retail investor and the aspiration of the institutional investor. But I think those are sort of important things. And a lot of retail investors on the property management side, you know, they may not have a massive cushion they're here for some cash flow. 
And so when that cash flow gets disrupted, things, you know, they're not, which can happen, right? And if, you know, a tenant might leave or they might have a life circumstance or something might happen with the property and suddenly there's an expense. I mean, these are all things that you can't predict. And we always recommend that, you know, don't take your last dollar and put it in here, you know, have a cushion because, you know, real estate, when we factor vacancies and we factor, you know, repair and maintenance expenses, they're actually normalized over a large period of time. So the fact that you didn't see anything the first two years doesn't mean that, you know, that number is not going to equalize you at in the third year with some expense. And sometimes people, you know, are sort of not quite cognizant of that or they choose not to, you know, tune into that fact. So those are, I would say those are some of the differences from a property management standpoint, which is the reason we stood up, a, you know, a different property management operation because, it's, you know, retail investors want every little detail about their property. So we have you know, we've got our own sort of platform called Auto, where they can log in and they can see every little inspection that was done, all the pictures that are there. We provide a ton of data back to our clients because we're a data-driven company. So, and it's all very transparent. They can go in and see who were the prospects that applied on a particular property when it was vacant. They can see all the maintenance requests. They can see, you know, the, the repair that was done. It's all all right there. And for a retail investor, that property or those two, three properties are very, very important to them. So they want transaction-level detail at that level. Institutions are more concerned about macro-level details. Now, they want they want to be able to drill down when they want to, but they're not interested in you providing them a minutia of you know, every little property transaction over a period of time. They're more looking at, you know, are you getting the rents that are at market? Are your repairs in line? Or are they trending somewhere else? How quickly are you responding? You know, what's your vacate to move in time? You know, how, how quickly can you rent a property? So it's it's higher level stuff. What's what's it taking you to renovate a property? Are your renovations coming in on time? And how what do my repairs look like after renovation? Because sometimes they'll trade off building a Taj Mahal versus, you know, something in between so that, you know, it's more reasonable upfront, but and maybe they, they incur some expenses down the line, but there's always an optimization going on. So there's a lot more science behind the institutional investors. And they all love the fact that we are able to provide them data. So when we're doing well, it shows. When we're not doing so well, it also shows. And we're able to correct stuff pretty quickly. The one other thing I would mention, which is kind of unique for us, is we sort of look at property management as a service business. So it's not like we we don't look at it as saying, you know, here's one property manager who manages 400 properties, another 400 second property manager. That's not how we run our business. We look at centers of excellence and subject matter. So we have leasing, for example, as a center of excellence, onboarding, offboarding as a center of excellence. We have resident services looking after the tenant as a center of excellence, the property as a center of excellence. And we have this sort of methodology, which we call the metaphor is we build the plane and we fly the plane. And the build the plane is each of these centers of excellence have a triad of the operations person that's leading it. There's a product person that's actually working there to see what processes can be improved or automated or where we're falling down and where there's opportunity for improvement. And there's an engineering person who's working with the product person to implement whatever we come up with there. So it's Kaizen. It's, it's a culture of continuous improvement. So wherever we are, we, we, we always want to make sure that we're trying to improve that in each of these centers of excellence. So that makes us very different in how we approach each of these processes. And since we build our own systems, we can look at the data and quickly, you know, decide where the improvements are. So for example, you know, our entire business is driven around tasks, right? I'm going down a little rabbit hole, but I'll come out of it. And task templates are fully automated. So if there's a move out task, some person that's doing it automatically sees a series of tasks. Each of the tasks has a timeline. 
So they know what they have to do. They know what triggers off what and who comes behind them. And then we as a business look at those task completion times, the quality of those tasks, so we can see how the business is scaling and how if at a granular level you're doing the job right, then when you aggregate, your overall job is going to be right. So we always go down to the root and everything you do. So that's fairly unique in, in, in the property management business and allows us to scale much faster. So without adding just bodies every time, we have to add bodies. We're growing very fast, but it's not linear by any means. Yeah, that is a novel approach. And as you describe it, it sounds like it's it creates a breeding ground for innovation, right? Because that divvying up those centers of excellence, uh, everyone that's within that team has their piece of the pie that you know, the job is improving this, improving what's right in front of me. And you're able to have a good mix of kind of a, a big picture and in the weeds. Love that approach. You mentioned the institutional partnership side of the fence. And, you know, uh, earlier in Vasco and uh, the $5 billion clip over, you said over three years, that is a lot of uh, capital over a relatively short horizon. Where in the world do you even start? How, how does that work? Walk me through that partnership and walk me through really how this is going to be executed over the next couple of years. Yeah, I think the short answer answer is that we do everything within you know the the investment thesis. So we are we'll look at you know build to rent projects where. It makes sense in, in, with the numbers and, and the locations that we're looking at. We look at open market deals from the MLS. We have direct connections to all the listing services. We built an engine for that. We have filters and that we can quickly filter down properties that make sense for us from a cap rate return and overall time horizon standpoint. So we're able to quickly do a bunch of rifle shots, right? Because we have the data. We have this thing called neighborhood investment rating that we rate neighborhoods from A through D. And we're able to see, you know, whether what the neighborhood is, what the ecosystem looks like, what that economy, that microeconomy is doing, what the neighborhood is trending towards. And all that data is fairly, you know, available to us because it's in our platform and continually improve that. So that's another another motion for us. And then we we'll buy portfolios from off market folks, from the usual brokers. There's a number of others that actually cater to you and come in and say, Hey, give me a buy box, I'll go find stuff for you. So we'll look at that as well. We are buying from the iBuyers. You know, we're well connected with those folks. So, you know, we, we have, I think, mind uh, on the institutional side. It's run by David Zanetti, who is our chief real estate officer, long history in the industry, worked with Waypoint in the early days with Doug and Colin, and then was at Open Door and other places came from AIG prior to that. So we built a team that are, you know, journeyman real estate sort of people or journey person, real people that are all fairly versed in how to do these things. So it's they're not doing it for the first time. And then we have a capital markets arm where if the deal needs to be structured in a certain way or things need to be done there, then we can kind of put that together. So I would say we've, we've kind of built an overall engine that looks at every kind of opportunity and has a separate focus subject area so that we can fire in each of these sort of motions and the aggregate hopefully gets brings us home. So you mentioned your A, B, C, D neighborhood grading system. Uh, can you give a peek under the hood? Like what, what are some of the factors that go into grading a neighborhood? 
It's a lot of different things, right? It's things like, you know, you look at, you know, home price appreciation, you look at median income, you look at, you know, how proximity to certain kinds of industries, you know, are they they within commuting distance? What's the chance of this neighborhood doing well or not doing well? You know, we we even look, look at things like Starbucks, Walmarts, you know, things of that nature. They correlate, you know, to, you know, the type of neighborhood you're looking at, you know, so there's, you know, there's probably initially 40 factors that we looked at and about 12 to 13 that correlated well that, that we looked at. And so median price of homes is obviously another one in those that, you know, and, and a neighborhood investment rating doesn't mean a, it's a bad or a good neighborhood. It just means that certain neighborhoods are more likely to give you higher returns, but more volatility from a from a yield standpoint. And certain neighborhoods are going to give you lower returns, but less volatility, right? I mean, so it's a matter of like picking stocks or bonds, right? You can high risk bond or you buy a stock that's more volatile, but you know, you might have a higher higher upside. So any any of these things, if you look at real estate investments, what you're really looking at is a bond with an equity kicker, right? You're getting a certain return and then at the end of it, you get a certain HPA on the property. And so you factor in both when you're looking at total returns. And so the neighborhood investment ratings kind of figure both those out. Some have higher HPA, lower yield, and some have higher, you know, yield and lower HPA. So type of thing. And the overall returns at the end depends on, you know, what you're looking for. So you all are looking right, nationwide and we are in a pretty unique environment right now, right? Rates are incredibly low. We have been riding you know, massive home price appreciation. I don't think massive is an inappropriate word to attach to it. So now looking ahead, how are you kind of prepping for any potential downside? Do you think that, are, are you bullish on nationwide home prices holding and HPA normalizing for the next few years? Do you have any concerns about kind of a, you know, double digit pullback in some markets of HPA that's happened over the last 18, 24 months? How are you reading the tea leaves on that? It's always a million dollar question, right? First of all, we're not nationwide. We're in, you know, we're not in the Northeast and we're not in most of the Midwest. We're not there yet, but everything else pretty much we've I think we're in 26 plus markets right now. And for us, it doesn't take as long to spin, out, spin up a market based on the structure I described to you earlier. You know, the, the bigger trend we're, that everyone's seeing is that cap rates are compressing a little bit because home prices, as you're pointing out, is sometimes 2x to 3x rent growth. Uh, places like Austin, it's much higher. Places like Atlanta, it's at least 2x. And it all kind of is driven by, you know, supply demand equations and available inventory. So, one of the things I think we're like a million plus houses short of what we need from a household formation standpoint and the employment growth and, and just generally population growth that, that we have. And I think if you look at the pipeline of what's under construction, what's permitted, most people are looking at 2023 as a, as a time that this will probably get normalized, that enough homes will actually hit the market from the new construction standpoint and probably the existing inventory piece, which has also been kind of tight, will probably start to normalize more. So I think you'll start seeing probably next year is going to be more of more of the same would, would be the guess. But the year after, I think we're going to start seeing a reduction in maybe in the home price appreciation, given that if more supply hits. And there is a thesis that, you know, that certain markets, I mean, you look at a few different factors, right? You look at a market and you say, what's the available stock? Like Atlanta has like, I don't know, two point. Two million or something like that is a stock, and what's what are the number of homes that sell in a year? It's typically about five percent of that. Then you say, okay, what what's the employment growth? What's the population growth? 
and how you know how many are the new construction starts that are happening and what was the historical number of you know available properties that were there on the MLS which is reduced now so you, if you take all of those together like Austin has a crazy employment growth because of just you know what's coming in and hence population growth Atlanta's most steady eddy it's an, it's a very strong market for a lot of people but it doesn't have that sort of an explosive growth so the question is how much is being built in these markets so it's like really a micro discussion and in those markets are we overbuilding beyond what the normal demand might be or are we going to be at equilibrium and my you know the general prudence is tough to tell but there are certain markets like Atlanta Houston Austin a couple of others where a ton of new constructions going on we got to keep an eye on and see what happens in in 2023 and whether we whether we've overbuilt or whether we are okay from that perspective but in general i think that's the time it's it's a pure supply demand if the economy holds up right the economy holds up if the supply hits the market then i think we see a reduction in in these crazy price growth as far as the rent growth goes i think the rent growth you know it's 12 15% higher in certain markets so i think it maybe there's a reversion to mean but i, I in this environment when more and more people are renting especially in these new communities and other places i think it continues to be strong so uh, if anything the cap rate the investment thesis might improve because the rent growth stays steady hopefully and the price growth declines a little bit so you can get in at at a better you know cost basis i don't know if i answered your question but that's kind of at a macro level how we sort of think of things but you know we don't see uh, your other question we don't see some massive correction the demand is strong you know you're at a 4. what 2% unemployment more people are entering the workforce you're what 61.4% or something participation that i saw in the journal and that number is going up you if anything you got a labor shortage you're going to see wages go up so if as the rents go up you know the wages are going up so that's a good thing they'll be able to afford it and which is why real estate is a good inflation hedge right the rents rise in good times so in I don't see any big clouds on the horizon based on what's going on right now. I mean there's no structural mismatch going on. There's no easy lending policies. Uh, if anything there are a lot of people on the sidelines that are not being able to get in. That's what's driving up prices. So if you increase inventory and more and more people are able to participate, you think we'd get back to more of a normal. Yeah, that that true supply demand delta, right? And you 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 mentioned a million homes and I think based on the kind of estimates I've seen, that's on the more conservative side. So if anything, it's it's that or even potentially higher on the number of units that need to be built out to really satiate that uh, the demand that's out there. So I I always point to that same metric on why I'm bullish for the next few years is that you you have a literal supply demand issue that's not going to be solved anytime in the immediate future. If you talk with suppliers at a conference in Vegas a couple months ago, I was talking with one who said they were the particular material that they created that their company was built on. They said they were down 30% this year on what they were able to produce unit-wise. they're booking the same expectation for next year so to be at that you know 30% below normal production rate so these macro issues you see you flip on the news and you see shipping containers just sitting out in the ocean like these things are not solving overnight and even if you said all right all the cargo containers hit land you're still months away from even that fantastical scenario 
really seeing any material difference in the market. So yeah, I, I'm with you. The you know we'll inevitably see rates rise, but we are at you know just a hair above all time historical rock bottom lows. So that's that's not a bad thing from a macroeconomic standpoint. Normalization there, but yeah, that I'm glad you brought up the delta of supply and demand because that's not going to fix itself very soon. So it's going to continue to keep home prices strong. Yeah, and the supply chain issue, as you're mentioning, you know, somebody at a recent conference saying, is it a supply or supply chain? So the shipping container phenomena where, you know, you've got empty containers sitting in Long Beach and Los Angeles and ships waiting out of sea trying to come in uh, has been a function of all these factories in Cambodia, Vietnam, other places being shut down by COVID. And when, so you, then you sort of uncork that and, you know, expanded that aperture and start people started coming in you hit that choke point, right? You just had too much coming in in a short period of time. And if we don't see another sort of wave of COVID, I think those factories get to normal. You'll slowly start seeing things come back to normal on the supply chain side. And that's the hope. On the supply side, there may be an endemic problem with labor. You know, immigration is down and a lot of other things are down in different areas. And a lot of people that we're, we're talking to on, on even cities like Phoenix, their construction capacity has gone down because they just don't have enough labor. You know, lumber starts with labor. You don't have the labor for the lumber and the wood doesn't, you know, it's all, all of the above. And I don't know what it takes to fix that, whether it's just a migration out of the workforce or people sometimes going, you know, there's a lot of people going out of manufacturing, doing other things, right? So I don't know if there's been a structural displacement into other industries or just some people waiting in the in the sidelines. I don't, I don't think we know the answer to that. But if that labor shortage continues, that's going to crimp your supply. Labor supply is going to crimp the supply chain, so as to speak, right, over the long haul. And so there are forces at work here that are tough to predict. And if anything, that could slow down the delivery of homes that come into the market, which would then mean that the normalization would take longer, right? Because the other factor in, in that discussion are millennials and what percentage of them are actually able to come up with a down payment to buy a home. So, you know, if you look at the FHA loan limits there, you know, the jumbo loan limits have been increased. So the FHA loans are the ones where you can put in a lower you know, down payment and get in the door. But there are certain limits to that as well. So as you know, you came from the mortgage brokerage industry. So I, I don't know how many of them have dry powder that once the supply opens up, they can go buy a bunch of homes or now they're comfortable renting and they get all the benefits of having the dog play in the backyard, having an office in the house, you know, having a community and a pool. And they might say, heck, you know, Maybe I put my money into Robinhood or some other place and not, not in real estate, you know, because it requires just more money and I want to be mobile and I'm living somewhere and maybe at some point they're going to call me back. But so I better rent and not own type of a thing. I don't know. So those are those are all factors that are going to play into demand from the next generation down, so to speak. Yeah, uh, no shortage of kind of million dollar questions we just ran through there. We, we sprinted through a litany of them. I love it. I love it. So for people looking to learn more about Mind, myndco .co, right? Dot .co. Yeah, that's the important thing that a lot of people think it's .com, but it's myndco and you know, that's you got a plethora of information there or, you know, if somebody's listening to this podcast, they can reach me at don.ganguli. I'm sure the name will be up there at mind.co and happy to take any questions, uh, answer anything or help somebody move forward their investment thesis, whatever it may be. Beautiful. Well, the retail, institutional side, everything in between. 
Hey, Don, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It was great to be here and great questions. I don't know if you solved the problems of the world. Maybe we can take on world hunger next in the next episode. We'll do that. We'll do a, we'll do a Q2 2022 episode on that one. So come back for more. So thank you, Don, for joining. And thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of The Real Estate of Things. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.